The Geopolitics and Empire podcast is joined by David Hendrickson, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Colorado College, where he taught from 1983 to 2020. He's the author of eight books and is the president of the John Quincy Adams Society. Thank you for joining Geopolitics and Empire, Professor Hendrickson. Have you been practicing duck and cover for when the nuclear bombs drop? I did that in grade school. You know, they, they would take us down to the cafeteria and, uh, you know, we'd lie down on the ground. So, yeah, I'm well practiced at that. So you're, you're good to go. Uh, and I spent a few years in Kazakhstan recently where I got to walk on ground zero, uh, the polygon, the principal Soviet nuclear test site. So I'm also good to go. Um, I was going to start by asking you a bit, uh, you know, of, of the regarding the roots of the current Ukraine crisis, but you, you kind of said that you wanted to be more forward looking. So why don't you start us off on, uh, you know, where you on the topic that you think is most pertinent regarding the current crisis with U.S., NATO, Ukraine, Russia? Well, I think that the, the really pertinent thing and the thing that Washington hasn't focused on and really understood is the uh, coming economic war. I mean, it's already started, but by the coming war, I mean the implications of having unleashed the great weapon of financial destruction, the WFD, the seizure of Russian central bank assets, you know, to the tune, uh, according to Biden, of $630 billion. And I think that that's going to have all sorts of uh, consequences which people don't see and uh, which are coming. And I would liken it to COVID when it started in China, leapt to Italy, went to Iran, uh, then reached us a few months later. Well, think about the tumbling dominoes right now. Uh, what does the administration most want to do? It wants to strangle Russia economically. But more importantly, it hopes to cut off all of the steps that might lead other states to avert that outcome. And uh, there's two big states right now that are part of the Washington game plan in that regard. Uh, and one of them is Iran and the other is China. Now, I think that the JCPOA is cooked. I think it's done. Uh, it was made in 2015 in a totally different geopolitical environment. It's true that it occurred after 2014, that is, the Maidan revolution in Ukraine. And so that led to a tremendous number of, um, uh, you know, sanctions on Russia. But nevertheless, Russia wanted to make that agreement and uh, played, of course, a very important role in the implementation as it was going to be implemented. But now I think the calculations are totally changed. And, um, you know, Washington wants that for the 2 million barrels a day, it would bring immediately onto the market. And, uh, you know, from the Saudi and Israeli perspective, that's like the worst motive possible. Because in 2015, Obama said, hey, look, I understand that you don't agree with this. But understand, we're trying to do something for regional security, and it doesn't signify a break in our friendship with you. So that was 2015. In 2022, they say, got to have that oil, baby, 2 million barrels a day. You know? And I mean, if you're Crown Prince Solomon, uh, oh, that does not look good. And uh, that's true for the Israelis too. 
The point being that even if the administration were successful in getting an agreement, um, it, you know, it might not survive the Washington um, opposition that's certain to arise to it. But I don't think they're going to get an agreement. And, you know, the Russians have stated these conditions that, well, uh, you know, we don't want to the economic embargo to extend to relations with Iran. And Washington very much wants that. There's a minor compromise that could conceivably be possible because the Russians actually have two conditions, not just one. And, uh, you know, the minor condition is that it not interfere with all of the things that are required to bring the agreement about. But the larger condition is that it not interfere with Russia's trade relations with Iran, period. And that's unacceptable to Washington. And uh, but the real kicker, and I think the thing that people do not understand, but which is very important, is that by walking it away from an agreement uh, and blaming the Americans, of course, when they do so, Russia, in effect, opens up another front for Washington. Remember, what was the point of 2015? What was the point of the original GCPOA? It was Obama's fear that we were getting to a point where he would have enormous pressure on him to use force against Iran. And uh, he didn't want that. And the Joint Chiefs of Staff didn't want it. And that was really the peg on which he got that through. And uh, I mean, from the Russian standpoint, I think it's the best thing in the world to have a big debate in Washington as to whether we're going to go to war against Iran now. That's a second front or a third front, depending on how you calculate those things. So anyway, that was the uh, that's a rather hot topic right now. And I think it's uh, I don't think Washington is thinking clearly about that, nor the markets. I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, now, the second outbreak of covid or covid economic warfare uh, is the U.S.-China relationship, and that's really where it's going to get hot and heavy. Uh, you know, Washington objects to Chinese resupply of military equipment for Russia. Uh, they put that on the table the last couple of days ago, and I just saw a headline to the effect that China intends to proceed on that front. The bigger thing is the economic relationship. and and. Washington's ability to say to China, you do this or else you cut off relations with Russia or do not do anything that will relieve them from their present plight or you're going to get sanctioned. Now, I don't think the United States really holds a lot of cards in that contest. And to understand why, you just have to, you know, review the history of the last 30 years of the international political economy. <laughs> Manufacturing went to China, as we all discovered to our dismay. Uh, and I can't tell you the number of sectors in which they have extraordinary market power. I mean, if they cut off their exports tomorrow, the American building industry would collapse. You know, they wouldn't have any screws. It's basic equipment. Now, I'm not saying that they're going to do that, but I am saying that they have, as a producer, more power in a contest with a big consuming nation. And the 500 billion they send to the United States each year uh, is a lot of stuff and is integral to the functioning of our economy. 
in basic respect. So, you know, the great question from the standpoint of the Chinese is how does Russia fit in their calculations? And I think that statement that Putin and Xi made before the war and before the Olympics, um, together with various other utterances by high Chinese officialdom, means that they now consider Russia a permanent ally. Uh, and a permanent ally is one that you cannot afford to see go down. And, uh, you know, if you ask yourself that question from the standpoint of Beijing or Tehran or Caracas, uh, you know, the question has to be, what does the world look like if Russia is no more, if Russia is broken, if Russia can't do anything? And I think it looks worse from their standpoint for all of them. Uh, you know, they... Uh, uh, they don't want that outcome, and I, I'm pretty confident that China does not want that outcome. You ask yourself the question, well, why did that condition come about? You know, all the realists were saying, don't do that. <laughs> don't force Russia and China into a situation in which they're permanent allies. But we did. That was our policy in both places. And basically, our policy amounted to the proposition that neither of those powers singly could have any friends. Well, that leaves them in a situation, you know, they're in the dark cellar together or on the desert island. It's just you and me, baby. You know, under normal circumstances, this thing wouldn't work. But here we are. So I think that's their calculation. Now, you know, it's always easy to make mistakes in you know, peering into the thinking of the inscrutable Chinese or the diabolical Russians. So, and I don't have a hundred percent track record on that score because I didn't think that Putin was going to do what he did in Ukraine. However, just to summarize that major point, uh, the COVID, the flu, the economic warfare, it's insatiable. It will touch every relationship. Uh, and of course, it's not only China, it's the entire global South. I mean, they too are gonna get the proposition from Washington. Uh, you do what we say, or you know, we're gonna expropriate your assets or do something horrible to you. And as I pointed out in that article in the American Conservative that you um, generously retweeted, uh, the uh, you know, that's such a bad long-term proposition from the United States because, in effect, we propose to get our way in the world economy through coercion, you know, through the, the uh, exploiting this position uh, in world finance that was actually built up on totally different premises. I mean, it wasn't built up on the premises of, you know, do as we say or we'll knock you off. It was built up on the premise that, this is to your advantage. Uh, you can get rich if you join us. And the commies are a road to poverty. Back then, as I'm recalling, it was the communists who said, coercion will save the day and will, we will prevail by uh, you know, threatening to throw everyone in the gulag. Well, uh, I'm sorry. You know, that is such a bad bargain from the Washington perspective. Now, I'm not saying that it can't work in a lot of instances and that that kind of pain 
won't affect the calculations of all of these states. Clearly, it's a big deal. But we're talking about how it's going to work out in the long run. And I think in the long run, it's just an extremely poor proposition to put to the rest of the world. A message from our sponsors. The Nomos app will help you survive COVID-1984 and the Great Reset. Nomos is a time bank that can be used by communities anywhere in the world. You just need to talk people into using it. For example, if you go to your barber for a 30-minute haircut, your barber receives 30 minutes in his time bank. He can then use that time to pay for an appointment with the doctor. I've spoken to the developer who is passionate about creating solutions for surviving and thriving in the apocalypse. Nomos is available in both English and Spanish. Hurry and visit nomos.net before they roll out the cashless society and put you in the algorithm ghetto. Also, if you need health insurance that covers you wherever you may roam, check out my friend James Guzman's Borderless Health Insurance. One of the great things about living internationally is saving money on health care, but private care overseas can be expensive. Go to borderlesshealthinsurance.com to watch a short presentation on expat and digital nomad healthcare and sign up for a free consultation to review your options. Geopolitics and Empire needs funding. You can leave a donation, book a consultation, or become a member, which gets you access to my brief weekly commentary, a monthly newsletter of my thoughts, a private telegram, a monthly members group call, and my second premium broadcast called Dissident Thinker, where I conduct interviews and provide solo analysis. Dissident Thinker is also available on Rockfin and for supporters on Locals. I, I, I'm agreeing with you on, on both points. And you know, I had some quotes um, from you here uh, in some of your recent pieces. You said, when the world economy suffers a cold, the global poor get pneumonia. If a fever, they die of starvation. Um, as a result of these draconian sanctions, it seems inevitable that hundreds of millions of people are going to get priced out of the market uh, for grains and um, you know that it will do some serious wrecking of our native habitat measured in such things as a much higher cost of living and a much higher level of employment um, in the West. And I think it, the, the repercussions is going to be insane where, I mean, we've seen in Canada now, you know, they've, they've frozen Canadian bank accounts uh, we, 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 with the whole trucker thing. And then what they're doing now to Russia, like deplatforming an entire country, uh, you know, cutting off the banks and uh, social media platforms, Instagram is going to be canceled in, in, in Russia, all hundreds of brands are pulling out, no flights. Uh, but I think uh, also, as you say, they're quickly finding alternatives. So Visa and MasterCard were canceled in Russia, and now they're going with the Chinese Union Pay, which has a huge market share, and it's just only going to keep growing, as well as the Indian uh, Rupee, I think. Uh, and so it seems like the rest of the world will eventually do fine without the, the, the Western system. It only made them stronger. And then the second point where I think it seems like uh, Mackinder's world island is rising, the, the dragon bear. And I've always felt that the West is declining. And we're now starting to see an accelerated decline in the West, perhaps increasing de-dollarization. And now the East is rising. I mean, what are your thoughts there? That's funny that you should mention Mackinder. I happen to uh, look back Oh, two or three months ago at Democratic Ideals and Reality. And, you know, his great idea in that book, which most people don't really see because they're thinking in terms of all of his mumbo jumbo about the world island and all of that stuff, is that uh, it was the Baltics and the Black Sea. You know, that's what he wanted above all. And here we are uh, with the West, you know, struggling to achieve naval predominance in the Black Sea. 
you know, so that we can refight the uh, Crimean War, you know, which incidentally, you know, receives a uh, rather poor rating among diplomatic historians as having been a, a brilliant idea on the part of the British and the French. But uh, yeah, the that category, that huge Eurasian mass, you know, that is a real thing, and they do have tremendous resources. Mackinder missed the boat because he didn't at all factor in the factor of nationalism. You know, he thought that, oh, gee, interior lines of communication and, you know, three other factors would mean that anyone who controlled Ukrainian wheat fields would be poised to dominate the entire thing. That was absurd. He made all sorts of wild, uh, he, he was kind of a bit of a forerunner of the neocons in terms of his uh, alarmist thinking in that regard. And, but at any rate, that's a, uh, that's a huge thing. I mean, you know, we basically have a competition emerging between the United States and Western Europe with Japan tagging along. And then the Russian-Chinese combo, I mean, the Chinese-led economic bloc, and uh, how, you know, that will work out in their various solicitations in that vast stretch of territory from, you know, Mexico City and Caracas to Africa to the greater Middle East to ASEAN to India the subcontinent, all of that. And I think that the Chinese you know, have been making good propositions to people that they respond to and think that are worth something to them. You know, hey, we'll build you an airport. <laughs> Here's a port. <laughs> you have to go into debt and no guarantees, uh, but it's real and it will contribute massively to your economic development. And you need to do this and we can do this for you. Uh, we also have this incredible array of goods that we can sell you, which you also need. Whereas, you know, the Americans can sell you bond certificates, you know, promises to pay in the future based upon the full faith and credit of the United States government, which we have just thrown into the toilet. I mean, the, uh, the media is hilarious in the way in which they treat Russian sanctions. You know, let's see, we're going to go after Putin's niece. And, uh, well, then I most favor trading status to them. And we're going to hit his cronies. And then there's the seizure of $630 billion of Russia's property. You know, it's just kind of one among several um, flavors on the uh, menu. But that's crazy. I mean, the seizure of that kind of pile, again, not quite that high. Biden was exaggerating, but still, it's the principle of the thing. That's just huge. I mean, it's 10 times larger than the Bolshevik repudiation of the Tsar's debts, because that was by a peripheral player uh, in the international financial system. This is the very heart of it. And, you know, the beating heart of the thing that made it work was we didn't do that sort of thing. I've been reading Mulder's uh, new book on sanctions, and, you know, it basically goes through the era of total economic war from 1914 to 1945. That's the guts of the book. 
he's not really very good on the earlier period, but you know, for 200 years, the principle that sovereign debts were sacred and were not to be seized and had to be paid, you know, was accepted not only in civilized Europe, but among the princes of Africa and uh, the mandarins of China and the nabobs of India and all such people who knew that great contracts had to be respected, especially in finance, because that's what made the world run. And um, as I say, we've just thrown that away. Now, if you're sitting in any of those capitals and asking yourself, uh, gee, that's a pretty impressive exercise of power. Um, you know, what would you think about that? Wouldn't, you, wouldn't it occur to you that, you know, Trump, if he's reelected and new negotiations with Mexico just might say one morning, oh, yeah, well, we've seized your all your foreign exchange reserves, by the way. Now we have this list of five demands for you. I mean, you know, they've got to be petrified. Uh, because it's so awesome. It's so beyond the normal uh, of, of the menu of economic sanctions. Anyway, we could go on forever talking about that, but there's a uh, there's an array of tumbling dominoes to come. And I think we've shot ourselves in the foot. I think the financial commentariat is uh, utterly oblivious to this. They haven't even looked at it. And why is that? Well, they don't care. Because the thing that's most important is to hammer the Russians. And, you know, we'll deal with the consequences later. That's their attitude. Uh, and it's a very childish attitude. And it's one that bespeaks a real indifference to the well-being of the American people. And uh, I think they're going to come to regret it. I mean, we'll see. Uh We'll be regretting a lot of other things as this goes forward. So maybe that will just be a minor thing they'll come to regret. But I think it's going to be bad. Um, one thought I have there. I mean, so you, you kind of outline now the, the economic uh, virus repercussions that we're going to start seeing. I mean, in, inflation is raging. Supply chains are breaking down. Energy and food prices are just going nuts. Uh, I was just reading uh, Japan. Uh, wheat prices hit like a high. Nickel uh, hit a high. I, I can't even remember. Um uh, Argentina just to stop the export of soy. I mean, just every day you can read this stuff. But for me, the biggest takeaway is for a while, I've kind of been uh, of more of the alarmist view of uh, of the decline of American empire. I've interviewed a number of people like Johann Galtung, cultural historian, Morris Berman. Um, and I felt like, you know, the American empire has been on the, the decline for a long time. And I think the greatest effect of all of this that you've been talking about is going to accelerate the decline at home and all of the problems we have uh, in, in America. What, what are your thoughts on domestically what's what's going on in the U.S. and just on all fronts? It seems like we have a, a, the culture, social, you know, sociocultural issues, economic problems, some talk of hyperinflation uh, regarding the dollar, um, as well as the political, you know, the, these divisions that we have now b between us. So what are your thoughts uh, domestically? Yeah, well, I pretty much agree with that. I, uh, you know, it is kind of an incredible thing uh, on that theme of the decline of the American empire. Uh, my good friend, Andrew Basevich uh, wrote a book. Oh, 10 years ago, I think a little more, something like that called uh, the short American century. And of course the Basevich theme was it's over 
You may not realize it's over, but it's over. Here we are a decade later, and it ain't over yet. I mean, the, the power of the Washington establishment to, uh, you know, take a licking and keep on ticking uh, is great. And, uh, you know, they have support in every congressional district. I mean, it's a massive political interest that sits behind the military industrial complex. And there's, you know, a media, think of the commentariat, think of what we hear from the Times and the Post and the Journal and the FT and the Economist and all of that. I mean, they all say the same thing. And they're all gung-ho for this. And they don't see those frailties at all, apparently. But those frailties exist. I, about uh, two or three months ago, when I was thinking about this, before it really you know, got hot and heavy with Ukraine, you know, the thought I had was that the United States rose to power and to command the world in the 20th century. And what lay behind that was this really profound, beautiful faith in the nation and its ideals. And that was genuine. And, you know, I share a lot of that. I mean, I believe in America's ideals. I think they've been grossly misunderstood and transmogrified in recent years. But the ideas themselves are actually, you know, very sound and uh, should be a source of inspirations to Americans if they had the decency to actually read them as opposed to invoking them, you know, to contrary purposes to what they actually meant in the first place. But that was the key to it. We believed. We had faith. And uh, that's totally broken. I mean, <laughs> we did live through 2020. We did live through the summer of Floyd. Uh, we have had a you know, gigantic assault on the Western Ganon and white male supremacy and all these other things that basically had as the punchline you have nothing in the past to admire. You have tremendous numbers of things in the past to revile. Among them, Thomas Jefferson and every other slaveholder and every northerner that acquiesced in that. And uh, the whole rotten corpse of American history is uh, something that you should learn to despise. Now. I mean, that was the message I got. And, uh, and a lot of people said that at the time. And what does that betoken? That betokens a shattering of the nation's self-image. And who believes it anymore? I mean, even the people on the right who would want to believe it don't really believe it. And the people on the left think it's a joke. You know, why would you want to read those people and why would you take any kind of pride in the, the institutions that uh, you had? So there's this weird, weird mismatch between a public dialogue that repudiated the heritage. And then when it's convenient to invoke it for some foreign policy issue, you know, we're back. This is, oh, no, this is really the greatest ever. Forget, forget what we told you two years ago. That's irrelevant now. 
uh, you, you know, media has this unlimited capacity to change the narrative in which they just go from one moral panic to another and then start beating you over the head with their point of view, allowing no dissent whatsoever. So I'm not quite sure what the next turn of the wheel will be in that regard. But all of that is very significant, I think, more so in a way than the uh, all of the economic and military stuff. It's an, it's an essential part of the tripod to use an expression of Clausewitz's, and that is in very bad shape. Uh, so, you know, the idea that, you know, six months or a year from now, when we're suffering more fully from the consequences where they're visible, as opposed to being somewhat invisible today, uh, gosh, you know, how do you, how do you win a long-term contest? with these adversaries uh, who are tough characters and, uh, you know, who have, who don't have that loss of faith in their nation. I mean, you know, the Russians may be bedraggled. They may curse Putin under their breath. They may be shocked and appalled at what's happening, but they're not going to overthrow him. And, uh, you know, their calculation is, well, the rest of the world hates us. So who do we have? We have each other. That's it. So that's the one thing that we can't give up. And, you know, China also has rather elevated ideas of its destiny in the world uh, and of its history and of its place in the march of civilizations. Uh, it's not going to give that up either uh, to comply with the latest diktat out of Washington. Yeah, I would just add on on Jefferson. You know, I've got a poster of him up behind me, and there you, there you know, it I, is. yeah, I've studied history, and uh, you know, my reading is I I, I always accept. You know, every figure is controversial. They've got good and bad. Each of each of us does. You know, in, in our in our lives, and I, you know, I, I'm a history major. I was a adjunct history professor, and I've studied the history, and I my reading that I like to apply is that yeah he, he did bad things he owned slaves but i the way i read it is that they were trying to make a path for the future to, to eventually end uh, slavery because you have these two systems which maybe are difficult to to just like we are in these systems now that are changing where you can't just do something overnight um especially if it's it's if you know at that time slavery was um I guess there was like a group consensus. So if you're just one person, you know, trying to break that consensus, you, it takes time to, to 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 overturn these things. So that's the way I kind of look at it. You know, I've also got the China Tiananmen Square tank man uh, above me here uh, as well. So, you know, there's China has good things. China has bad things, right? Tiananmen Square. Um, getting back to Ukraine for a moment, you've been also writing about this. And we're talking about now the economic, economic uh, impacts, the changing of the shifting or, sort of the world order, you know, China. Russia, BRICS, and all of that uh, getting together. Uh, but what you know, what about the military uh, aspect? We, uh, America is now sending financial aid and weapons to Ukraine, as well as foreign fighters. I think from Syria. I believe the Russians as well are are bringing in foreign uh, volunteer fighters from Syria, yeah. per, perhaps and elsewhere. And it's like the U.S. is trying to replicate the Afghanistan Syria model um, in Ukraine. And just today, Estonia, I think, is calling has called for a no-fly zone. Uh, do you fear NATO or American entry into the Ukraine war, which, you know, it could then turn, lead to a wider scale conflict or or even uh, World War III? I, I was listening to a Croatian admiral 
the other day, because uh, I'm also Croatian, I speak Croatian, and he was saying he thinks that if it's up to the Russians, it w- the conflict will not go beyond uh, Ukraine. It's It all depends on the crazies uh, in Washington and, and, and Brussels that they have the capacity to kind of spark things, <laughs> escalate things. What are your thoughts? Well, yeah, it's very dangerous. I mean, I thought that we were kind of out of danger on that front when Biden emphatically rejected a no-fly zone, but it turns out that I think that's still off the table for the president than for Blinken. But, you know, they're making a huge effort to uh, shove supplies into uh, Ukraine. And, uh, you know, the Russians are going to bomb those. They're not going to bomb Poland. I mean, you know, this is typical of the networks. We say, we're going to shove supplies into Ukraine. Russia says, we're going to bomb your supply lines. They do. And then the media says, they're going to attack Poland. That was only 25 kilometers away. I mean, no. You know, think of Vietnam. You know, they supplied a lot of military equipment to the VC and the, uh, the NBA. We bombed those supply lines. It's a similar kind of deal. But, you know, that desire to affect the outcome is a pretty big deal because that leads to things. And so I don't think we're by any means out of the woods with respect to that. Um, You know, and it remains a source of uh, potentially uh, great danger. Uh, You know, my my kind of take on that, I, I do think that Putin pretty badly miscalculated in terms of what he expected. I mean, that seems pretty evident, although I'm a little bit cautious and believing, you know, like the stories of the FSB agent who that is too convenient from our standpoint, the story to necessarily be taken with total uh, credence. But taking all the evidence at all, I mean, yeah, it's going a lot worse than what he expected. Although I do think that, you know, if you look at the military situation in the east, you know, that army that the Ukrainians have is going to get surrounded. And is going to be encircled and is going to face a choice between surrender or annihilation. I think that's in the cards. Um, You know, they face the Russians face just this terrible situation in the cities. I I have no idea how you solve that. I don't want an Afghanistan outcome. I mean, that really breaks my heart because it's as if people don't realize you know, that we've been at it in Afghanistan for over 40 years. And look, you know, we've got practically a genocide there. I mean, how many people died from starvation this winter? How many more will die? It's a wasteland. And, uh, you know, making a place a wasteland, while it is attractive from a military point of view, because you know, you prevent the adversary from gaining anything. And uh, when I studied military strategy, I was always sort of like, well, this was a different David Hendrickson back then, but, you know, that obviously seemed appealing. And the thing you do is you can't win necessarily, but you can sure prevent the other guy from winning and throw all sorts of sand in his face and create a first-class disaster. Well, I mean, it is requisite to think of what it's going to look like for the Ukrainians in one to two to three to four years hence. 
and whether they'll have any kind of possibility of, you know, making some sort of a decent life for themselves. And I think that there too, Washington just doesn't care about that because its fixed idea is hammer the Russians in any way you can. And uh, so, yeah, it's a, it's a totally, totally grim situation, but I, I still think a war, an actual shooting war is pretty unlikely because, you know, both sides appreciate what that would mean and they would have to be insane to want to go there. I'm not absolutely clear on the point that they're not insane because as I say, I think Washington is totally dominated by anger and revenge. Those two things above all. And, and when you're angry and when you're vengeful, uh, you know, I've done it before. I've kicked the trash can in my room, you know, and sent it across the room. Practically broke my toe. So, yeah. you know, it's the most human tendency in the world to think that way, but it's also not the way that diplomats should think. And uh, yeah, yeah, I would agree with you, your uh, scenario as well regarding Russia um, and in the urban uh, playing field. That's, I don't know how, you know, they'll carry out what, what they need to carry out. Maybe they'll surprise us. And, you know, I recall a month or two ago speaking with um, Dr. Paul Craig Roberts, who was, I floated the idea. My, my view was that, well, I, I hope it doesn't turn into that, but I saw one scenario. If this doesn't end soon, it'll turn into kind of like uh, what happened in, in in my country in the 90s, the Croatian-Bosnian, Croatian, you know, Yugoslav war that went on for a number of years. Um, so, you know, we could see that in, in, in Europe again. I, I hope it doesn't get to that uh, because, uh, I mean, those are the few options. It ends quickly with an agreement. It turns into this prolonged uh, attrition situation or, you know, it escalates to something uh, worse and hopefully it gets solved quickly uh, another thing that bothers me is the this american exceptionalism again a lot of people mistake me from being anti-american i always say i'm i'm patriotic i love the constitution i love the republic i just hate uh, the empire and the bad things that you know the empire does the, the military industrial wall street uh, complex and we saw uh, nancy pelosi and charles schumer just announced that zelensky is going to address the full congress uh, of the us and they use language such as putin's cruel and diabolical aggression I'm not saying that's not the case. I'm not saying it is. But what really bothers me is this cosmic hypocrisy. You know, I would call America's illegal invasion of Iraq cruel uh, and diabolical. There have been studies that said as a result of that war, you know, one or two million in innocent civilians have, have died. Uh, and then, you know, we've got the illegal aggressions, American aggressions in Libya and Syria and currently in Yemen. And everyone is, you know, uh, silent. And I think until we deal with our own aggressions, I don't think we have the right to say anything about Russia's military operations. I mean, what are your thoughts on, on this? Well, yeah, I basically agree with all of that. Um, I would say that, uh, you know, I didn't expect Putin to do what he did. And uh, I think the Russians had a good case uh, insofar as the issue concerned Crimea and the Donbass. Um, and I spelled that out in some of the articles, which was based on purely American reasoning with respect to natural right and constitutions. And the gist of it was that, you know, the Maidan revolution broke the constitution 
It was the Ukrainian version of January 6th, except it was successful. And January 6th, you know, was conducted by bozos and bumblers. And uh, but it broke the Constitution. Now, uh, as I pointed out, with all sorts of uh, learned commentary from figures like Daniel Webster, if you do that, you know, you're in a state of nature and you cannot both break the Constitution and then in your next step, appeal to it. But that's exactly what the Ukrainian nationalists did. They said, hey, the Ukrainian Constitution forbids a secession of these provinces. Well, yeah. So that would have made it illegitimate insofar as you had a regular transfer of power in Ukraine. But once they seized power, like, you can't appeal to that. You just trashed it. Uh, and so uh, from that standpoint, you know, the Russians had a good case. Uh, I mean, the people of the Crimea had a good case to declare their independence. And Russia had just as good a case to give support to their people as we did to give support to our side. Now, this war is different because, you know, it's a he's taking a big chunk of the country. God knows how big a chunk. I don't know. That was always the problem in thinking through this invasion, that there was no way to occupy the whole country. So that meant that you would have to draw some line down the middle. Where would that be? Well, you know, once you start thinking about that, it becomes kind of impossible. And the one clear thing is that whatever you have on your side of the line is going to be matched by some big force on the other. So it doesn't really solve the problem. And it's criminal, uh, as wars are generally, offensive wars above all, because of all the people that die as a consequence and uh, all the mayhem that it causes. Now, I do think that on the scale of inequity, it's about on a par with uh, the American invasion of Iraq in 2003. And, uh, you know, because you have contiguity at stake in the, in the Russia-Ukraine case, that gives a slight edge of legitimacy to the, uh, to the Russians. But I think basically they're on a par in that regard. And I think there's incredible parallels uh, between the two wars. It's really, you know, kind of interesting important to compare the military campaign particularly. One thing that people don't realize is that because Putin was apparently under this delusion that, you know, people were going to greet him warmly or that it would, you know, it would all happen quickly. You know, they didn't blast away uh, and rain down, you know, a hell of fire on the Ukrainians in the first instance. You know, they didn't really bring their air force to bear. Well, that's not the American way of war. The American way of war is to blow up everything that's conceivably relevant, including infrastructure, you know, shut down the electrical grid, do all sorts of heinous things that inevitably have terrible consequences for civilians and then say, well, we didn't kill any civilians. I mean, that wasn't our intention. And I don't, we don't really think that happened and that's not been verified. And, uh, you know, the press says, well, have you counted the bodies? And, uh, you know, Tommy Frank says, we don't do body counts. That's, uh, that was Vietnam. I mean, we don't really concern ourselves with that. Well, as you say, you know, the ultimate casualties were horrendous. I think that the thing to look at now is, you know, kind of what happened in the first one to two months of the Iraq war in terms of the number of civilians killed and that sort of thing. And 
So that's the first point. The second point is that you have a kind of replay uh, in Ukraine now of the same dialogue that went on in uh, Iraq, which is the Americans say the diabolical enemy is placing its military stuff, you know, next to civilians. They are responsible for whatever injury falls to the civilians. And, uh, you know, the other side says they're trying to kill civilians. That's their objective. It's genocide, you know. So you have these conflicting narratives and both sides are actually, you know, always lying to the press in terms of what they're doing. I mean, I think you take maybe not always, but a lot of the time they are. And, and so you have to look at that contest in those terms. I mean, you know, Lavrov says that the, uh, you know, they tried to get the uh, Chinese and Indian students out of Kharkiv, I think it was, had buses already for them, and the Ukrainians wouldn't let them leave. You know, they said, uh, you can't go north, <laughs> you've got to go south, if at all. And that kind of, uh, that kind of contest in which the insurgents or the enemy is using civilians as a shield, in effect, taking them hostage. Uh, and the occupying power, the invading power, is uh, blaming them, but then also being reckless and uh, inhumane in its use of force. That's a total replay of the Iraq thing. Uh, I mean, the thing that gets my goat more than anything, and this bears on what you said, and it wasn't, you didn't quote it in quite the way that I would do. It's as if, you know, American public thinks that the American military has never taken a city. Ever. We don't do that sort of thing. Well, hey, Kobani, Raqqa, Ramadi, Mosul. I mean, you point to the hypocrisy of invading these countries. Well, you know, I mean, defiling the principle and then invoking it in Ukraine, but I think the more relevant thing is, uh, you know, look at those military operations. And, you know, we always pride ourselves on, well, we're discriminant. We don't try to kill civilians. But, you know, when Mosul fell, the Kurdish foreign minister said that 40,000 civilians had died. And it could have been much higher than that. because Just look at the pictures. That's all you have to do. Of Kobani and Raqqa and all of them, you know, the cities are flattened. People are crushed under concrete. Uh, and, you know, really uh, comparing the Russian campaign to that, well, it's not there yet. I mean, God knows it could get there. I don't know. Uh, it's an awful thing that uh, has happened. And I know just to make a final point with regard to that, you know, everyone says that uh, it's all Putin's fault. And, uh, you know, yeah, most of it is this war. But the United States really does have a lot of blame in how this was handled. I mean, you know, people warned for a generation that you could not go into an area of Russian vital interest without risking just what we now have before us. And it happened. And those warnings were um, were vindicated. And if you look at what American policy was, it was just an incoherent mess. I mean, we said NATO expansion in Ukraine 
And that had the purpose of frightening the Russians, of telling the Russians they were serious. It had the purpose of reassuring the Ukrainians, we're with you, brother. But it wasn't real. It was a magic trick. It was, the, you know, now you see it, now you don't. Mearsheimer, you know, said that, well, basically, Ukraine was made a de facto member of NATO, but they weren't. I mean, they were a de facto member in the sense that they got a lot of military training from the United States and NATO moved in a big, in a big way into Ukraine in the last five years. But they weren't a member in the sense of being covered by the Article 5 guarantee. And that hazy little space where, you know, the magician is on set stage and saying, to the Russians, oh, you better watch out. And to the Ukrainians, hey, we've got your back. And to the Americans, hey, no war. We're not going to get involved. That was just a pathetic display of diplomacy. I mean, of the worst kind. I, I, I can't really think of anything in history that, you know, holds a candle to, to that. And, uh, you know, it's a telling commentary on it that uh, had Trump gotten a second term, that he probably would have been able to avoid this. I mean, crazily enough, you know, the madman Trump uh, had enough sense to, for example, make a deal with Putin before the war to say, all right, we think that NATO expansion is a joke. <laughs> anyway, we're going to give up the idea that it's going to happen in 20 years, okay? We'll take that off the table. But these people were incapable of saying that. they have this idea of of nato that that is that it must expand forever you know if a colony on the moon wishes to apply for membership and is threatened by another lunar object well then we're obligated to you know let them in <laughs> actually we're not obligated to let them in we're obligated to promise to let them in at some future date uh, which no one knows, you know, what that will be. So, yeah, I think it's a scandal. And uh, <laughs> there's a there's a clip going around. I don't know the context. I just saw the clip just like yesterday or the day before. Uh, Vice President Kamala Harris apparently thought uh, Ukraine was a member uh, of NATO. She made I don't know if you've seen that. She made some comment uh, regarding Ukraine and uh it being in, in NATO. So again, I don't know the context. I don't want to get it wrong. But there's also something interesting that you said regarding that both sides lie, meaning the Russians and the, and the Americans. And I, I'm tending to have that approach, even though lately, um, you know, because of all the, the bad that the American exceptionalism has had, has done in the past, recent past, like they've done more damage than, let's say, the, the Russians or the Chinese in, in, in the recent years. And me being a Slav as well and a conservative, I'm kind of like, you know, maybe what, what the, I'm less maybe critical of the Russians, but I think your point is very valid that both sides are lying and I step on everyone's feet because I get guests that speak from all different positions. And so people will say, oh, this guest was great, you know, because I have the same perspective. And then I get someone else speaking and they're like, oh, you know, you're you're anti-Russian or, or, or whatever. And it's like, no, oh. we got we got we got to hear everything. And I think, of course, every state, every government lies and has propaganda. You can't trust anyone. And you, you, you have to kind of figure out w w where the truth is. Um, th this kind of leads me to your Twitter bio, which I, I thought was hilarious. You said that you hate the right and you hate the left. I, I kind of like that. Could you just kind of explain that? In that order. It, it, I hate the right and hate the left in that order. 
which is meaningful. Well, by that, I mean that, you know, for 20 years, I was in a fever about the wrecking job that the neocons, who were then ensconced in the Republican Party, were undertaking to, you know, do on the American nation. And uh, so, you know, Bush era neoconservatism is the thing about the right that I hate it. I mean, not conservatism in general. You know, I love Burke. I don't hate Burke. I love Hume. Don't hate Hume. But, you know, all these guys have no connection at all whatsoever with uh, anything resembling the uh, conservatism of the past. Well, that was then. Then I learned to hate the Democrats and the left. Uh, Why do I hate them? Well, I said a little bit earlier, I mean, you know, they trash a heritage that I regard as very important and has ideas that actually could save us if we took them seriously. And, uh, you know, I've plowed very deeply in those fields, you know, the 18th century thought, particularly the founding, the people that followed them and I didn't really go to study them with the idea that I would find a philosophy of international relations. You know, I was an historian or just an historian, you know, trying to understand what had happened and maybe draw some lessons. But in the course of that, I really did kind of acquire my public philosophy from that vast complex of writings that grew up around the American Revolution and founding and then went forward. The left hates that. It's repudiated that. It uh, it wants to tear down the statues of all the men I admired. And, uh, you know, the the book I wrote on Jefferson with Robert Tucker, this was in 1990. That was actually very tough on Jefferson. We raped him over the coals. But I, I, I revolted from that because... You know, so many books were then subsequently punished, like by Connor Cruz O'Brien and other people that, you know, made him out to be a wretch. Whereas, in fact, you can find in Jefferson, whatever you think about the various ways in which he navigated the slavery issue and such things. You know, the real fundaments of, uh, of, a, of, a, of a beautiful public philosophy and one that's one that's very relevant and uh You know, he had a capacity to sing about that in a way that, you know, had no parallel at the time. His his buddy, James Madison, was kind of a plotter by comparison. And Jefferson was an artist. Uh, Anyway, that's kind of a long roundabout way of saying that I think the left has gotten seized with a lot of very puerile ideas and uh, has become addicted to preening and uh, no longer has any sense of what it means to govern responsibly. And, uh, you know, I just can't believe that the neoconservatives, the Crystals and the Frums and the Kagans and the Rubens and all now find the Democratic Party to be their home. And, uh, you know, the foreign policy of the Democratic Party is just basically a replica of what it was 20 years ago when 
it was represented by George Bush and Dick Cheney. I mean, that's how I see it. You know that now, of course, the uh, that's just foreign policy. You know, the Democrats have a domestic agenda, the critical race theory, you know, changing all of our educational institutions, make them to have their purpose be not the liberal arts, not exploring, you know, the vast, you know, incredibly rich vein of knowledge that exists in libraries, but to indoctrinating people that, you know, you have to think a certain way. Well, that's such a total abdication of, of the true mission of these institutions, and it will ruin them and destroy them, I think, if, it's, if it persists. Uh, you know, the, on the environment, on energy, on all of those issues, it's just a mishmash of poses and it, the left's position. It doesn't reflect any kind of serious consideration. You know, example of which is Biden and his team heading down to Venezuela to have a good talk with the boys in Caracas. <laughs> I just think that's the most hilarious thing in the world because, of course, Venezuela's tar sands are subbribe carbon assets, the worst in the world. And here we are. Can we get a million a day out of you? Can we get two million a day? Come on. And, you know, you can just imagine the Venezuelans talking to themselves. You know, I'm sure that they call each other the same names that the Americans call them, you know. So they're like, you know, they're talking amongst themselves, you know, hey, you miserable low life, want to take a stroll with a great Satan, you know, make a deal with Uncle Sam. I mean, you know, it's just hilarious, really. I mean, it wouldn't be a comedy if it weren't inseparably connected from the ongoing tragedy that these people are now delivering unto us. I guess my my the final topic I wanted to bring up was also in light of everything that's going on, the, the whole, you know, this new Cold War, US, Russia, Ukraine censorship, uh, and we're, you were mentioning that in the email, it's just absolutely insane. I've never seen this in, in, in my life. I feel like it's the 1950s McCarthyism. They've canceled all of Russia's platforms, and they're basically giving us one mono view here uh, in the West of, of what's going on. I mean, they're even canceling us Westerners. I've had my YouTube now on a second strike, um, and it's just like, my Twitter was recently suspended. I got it unsuspended again. Oh, was it it's really? Just, it's just crazy. I mean, what are your thoughts on the a level of censorship that we're seeing in this supposed free world? You know, you know, liberty, constitution, democracy, free speech. It's not the case. <laughs> yeah, no, it's horrible. I mean, and frightening. And uh, the, I mean, the lengths to which it's gone. Um, you know, I mean, my idea of the of this is that you know next wednesday the federal reserve will issue an edict to the effect that all russian cats shall be drowned in the bathtub you know by the close of business that's a good image because i don't know if you've ever tried to drown a cat in the bathtub but it's tough i actually haven't done it but i think i've seen it on tv (laughs) they fight back uh but you know, I'm totally with the Greenwalds. I mean, I love Glenn. I don't always agree with Glenn stuff, but man, that guy is such a fighter for freedom. And, uh, you know, the, the fact that they parrot those words, the sacred words, and then do the things that they're now doing 
in their incredible righteousness. It's just gross. The, the, it's not only Twitter and Google and all of that. I mean, you know, that's also very bad. I mean, it's, that's all very bad, but it's the inability of the Times and the Journal and all of them, you know, the Post, the FT, et cetera, to allow any dissenting opinion. I mean, when, do, when, when are their editorial pages open to anyone that, you know, will criticize the consensus? Yeah, occasionally. You know, the Times will publish a piece by Steve Wartime or Mearsheim or Basevich gets on TV because he was a military officer, not because he's a genius. And, uh, you know, the it's just a closed loop that they've created for themselves. And they cannot see that anyone, you know, who has a dissenting opinion about this can be anything other than a Putin agent. <laughs> well, you know, that really riles me up because, as I say, you know, I get all my principles from uh, the American founders and would like to have an argument with them about that. But they don't allow an argument. You can write 50 essays making all of these points, and that is greeted by total silence. I take that to mean that they can't meet the argument. They yeah. can't meet it. So the only way to deal with it is to ignore it or suppress it. And I think that's where we are. So, you know, we need, uh, we need brave fighters like Glenn and other peoples to uh, stand up for the flag, baby. You know, the, uh, the American way, the one where, uh, you know, you get to state your point of view and, uh, you know, people are obligated to listen. They're free to refute you, but they're never free to suppress you. And that was always the rule. And uh, we're on the cusp of abandoning it. And it's a gigantic tragedy. Speaking of uh, someone from outside the consensus being published, I think it was 2014 that the New York Times uh, accepted an op-ed from Putin. You know, maybe now is the time to get another op-ed from Putin. And here are my thoughts on the Federal Reserve uh, and the Fed right there on my coffee cup. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's a, I mean, you know, that's a vast topic. Yeah. And I, I was never kind of in the, in the Fed camp. And let's go back to the gold standard. Although I do think that, you know, basically what they've done recently you know, does betoken the end of the old monetary order. And this, it's the seizure of the central bank assets that is the crossing of the great red line. And, uh, you know, the way the Fed conducted themselves over the last decade is just a total scandal. I mean, they, they basically said, we are going to do everything we can to inflate the assets of the super rich And uh, we're all the time we're going to be saying that, oh, it's unemployment that we're concerned. That was all a big lie. Now they're saying it's putting padded Wall Street's, uh, uh, you know, coffers. There was a great interview over the weekend with Jeremy Grantham, who's no radical. And uh, Grantham said exactly that. This was on Bloomberg and people should watch it because it comes from someone who is intimately knowledgeable about financial markets, uh, who's always been a voice of reason. And that's exactly what he said. You know, the Fed has uh, fed the plutocracy and this has been, this has come at enormous expense to the, the uh, 
you know, the lives of ordinary people. And it's just blindingly obvious that that's the case. Now, I think further, though, I would say that I always thought that was crazy because, you know, the, the question was, well, what do you do when you end the, the, reach the end of the road? You know, if you inflate the market at 10 to 15 to 20 percent a year and put it on a high perch, that poses extreme risk to the financial system if you get a big shock because, you know, it's free and easy and uh, nice living when uh, the market's coasting up 15% a year, but it's, es- you know, it's uh, escalator up, elevator down with the markets and a 50% crash, uh, you know, it's devastating to ordinary people who didn't participate on the upside. And of course, the financial wizards usually figure out a way to protect themselves uh, in those times. And so they're okay. But ordinary people are crushed. And so the question for the Fed is, you did this. Didn't you see a time when you couldn't keep buying bonds forever? You know, when you couldn't buy $3 trillion a year in bonds and suppress interest rates to zero? That was a total distortion of how capitalism is supposed to operate. And, uh, you know, we've, they've, they've created a situation where the valuations are certifiably insane by comparison with any historical reckoning. And now they're trapped. I mean, what are they going to do? If they, if they raise interest rates to 5%, they bankrupt the, uh, the system. If they, if they keep them low... You know, you're looking at Weimar. I mean, you're looking at, we're not at Weimar, but you are looking at an out of control situation with regard to, you know, the uh, value of the US dollar. So, yeah, that it, it just, it just makes no sense to me, the course that was taken. It seemed, you know, like everything else in Washington, it seemed calculated to fix their problems, uh, you know, that they're looking at right now. But attended by a total obliviousness to, you know, the problem that they would ultimately confront and that would pose an old unsolvable dilemma for them. And uh, so, yeah, I the quality of our leadership in the financial, political, military realm uh, is in my view uh, just a disaster, and it is fundamentally in all of those spheres a reflection of you know there's just this inability to 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 think of you know five steps ahead or you know five weeks ahead. Uh, whereas if you compare the the government of China to ours. I mean, I'm sure the government of China is in very critical respects uh, a disaster, uh, especially in its responsiveness to the people. But, you know, they have a plan. I mean, for example, just a very telling example, when oil crashed to zero in early 2020, what were the Chinese doing? They were buying it like crazy to the maximum of their capacity. Well, of course. It was obviously the thing to do because obviously the price of oil was below the long-term price. So you were actually doing something of benefit, but something like that was beyond us. I mean, you know, we were still selling oil from the SPR at that time because Congress 
you know, had to find ways of making, you know, getting money to meet their budget targets and that sort of thing. No consideration given whatsoever to the integrity of the U.S. oil industry. And, you know, like we want it to stick around for a while and it would be desirable if we could make it stick around and also have environmental safeguards attending that. Those two objectives, you know, appease the, the oil people, appease the left, give them both something that's in the national interest. That wasn't even on the table. No one, even Washington, even thought of something like that because, you know, it would require thinking about the issue as opposed to posturing about it. Well, as President Biden has been saying, uh, at least the Fed has someone they can blame now. Uh, it's all Putin's fault for the economic collapse. So um, they got <laughs> they got that going. Do you have any, any final thought uh, to leave us with? Well, I mean, they do have, I must say, a heavy in Vladimir Putin to blame everything on. And that obviously is their strategy. And they think that they can get away with it. I, you know, it's not out of the question that they can for a time. Uh, because, you know, the American people are subjected to this continual media blast with regard to the static features of the greatest Satan of them all. And um, so since Putin, you know, a war isn't the ugliest thing imaginable and uh, the people understandably become viscerally upset by it and uh, so that anger is very real and uh, it it's you know going to carry the administration a certain way but I do think that when the uh, the collateral damage of the steps that we've taken uh, becomes clear and that uh, you know, People realize, oh my God, <laughs> we're really in a, a bad way here, and there's no way out. Uh, you know, they'll be looking to blame someone, and the way the politics works is that they may blame Vladimir Putin for a lot of stuff, but they don't vote in Russian elections, and so they vote in American elections. And in American elections, you only have these two choices: you can throw the bastards out. Or vote for someone that you think is an incompetent, but is at least not the guys who are in office right now. And I think that's how they're going to think. And so, you know, my view is that the Democrats are looking at, you know, first class disaster in the fall. Then in 2024, the only thing that possibly saves them is that the Republicans are so incredibly weak on all the major issues. And uh, so that's a good way to conclude this on the theme of hating on the right, hating on the left, and hating Twitter too, because they banned you, yeah. bastards. <laughs> yeah, I'm, back. <laughs> I'm back for now. So, um, And speaking of Twitter, I think the best places, as far as I know, to find you are on uh, Twitter, as well as you, you writing for American Conservative National Interest, as well as um, you being the president of the John Quincy Adams Society. Uh, are yeah. there any any other websites? Uh, well, or, I, or I have a personal website called DavidHendrickson.org, where I have a lot of my essays and you know various things that that, uh, that I put together over the years. So if you want to kind of get to know me, that's a, that would be a good place to check out. All right. Yes. So everyone. Do go find, um, help out Professor Hendrickson on, on Twitter, get, uh, get, get a few more followers there, and then fo uh, indeed follow his work uh, and commentary via his Twitter feed or um, you know, to, from 
all the articles that he posts from American conservative, conservative national interest, and I think other uh, publications as well. Uh, and thank you for being uh, on Geopolitics and Empire. A lot of fun. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines. The newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find Geopolitics and Empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes. Facebook restricts our page. Reddit and Twitter take down posts. And after the Associated Press mentioned Geopolitics and Empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our Pro account. The best free way to help Geopolitics and Empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms, Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Finally, Geopolitics and Empire is in dire need of funding to continue. You can leave a donation, purchase a consultation with the host, or become a member to receive additional benefits. We also produce a weekly broadcast called Dissident Thinker for members and Rockfin subscribers only. We will continue to fight the good fight come hell or high water. Thank you for listening.